two friends, Alan Dale and Jerry Carew, who grew up just a few streets apart in St. John's East End, have been separated by Canada's geography for three decades. They came together virtually during the pandemic to chat about like-minded interests. Alan lives in PEI and Jerry in Newfoundland. Thriving in remoteness has been a common theme for both of them during the pandemic. Gale Force wins. The podcast is the result. Well, welcome to Gale Force Winds. I'm Alan Dale, and with me, as always, my good buddy from the East End of St. John's, Jerry Carew. How are you, Jerry? Alan, uh, I'm doing well, and I'm excited about this particular guest, partly because Gale Force Winds, you and I created this to be an Atlantic Canadian and, you know, Canadian um, podcast. We've been really focused a lot on the Newfoundland entrepreneurs. Uh, we've had several guests from around the country. Uh, but uh, Peter, you know, I think you encapsulate what it is to be an Atlantic Canadian and a Canadian. So I'm excited to, to dig in. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Jerry. I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk to you. I've, I've uh, tuned into some of your broadcasts, your podcasts, and I think it's wonderful to shine a positive light on Atlantic Canada that we should be doing more of it, really. Absolutely, Peter. There, there's nothing better than celebrating success. And, uh, and Jerry and I like to put it through the lens of Atlantic Canada. And honest to God, I think that uh, you're, you typify what it is to be an Atlantic Canadian. So, Peter McKay, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, I'll do so, Alan. Thank you. Uh, my name is Peter McKay. I grew up in Atlantic Canada, Pictou County, Nova Scotia in particular. Um, son of a, a lawyer and politician and a an activist. My mother was uh, perhaps the most influential person in, in my life growing up. Many associate me, I suppose, because of my career with my dad, but my mom was, uh, was by far a, a force of nature in her, in her own right. Um, a daughter of a, a Royal Navy commander who retired here after spending so much time in Nova Scotia during both the First and Second World War and decided he never wanted to be on the ocean again and became a blueberry farmer in Centerville, Nova Scotia. And I have fond memories of uh, being on that farm. And, uh, you know, in my childhood, I, I went to a one-room school, which seems unbelievable. It's sort of like watching an episode of Little House on the Prairie. When I think back to that time, it doesn't seem possible in this modern age, but I just caught the tail end of that era. And uh, went, to, went to high school and university in the Valley at Acadia, went, went on to do a law degree at Dow. And then um, I wound up you know, prosecuting in, in a courtroom in, uh, in Pictou County. And a, a terrible um, occurrence sort of propelled me to, to do more in the law. And, and that was when the West Ray Mine exploded, a, a terrible accident that took the lives of 26 men. There was a, a criminal prosecution of the company and the mine managers. And as a result, I was thrust into probably taking far more responsibility than I was uh, uh, equipped to at that point in my career. But I, I reveled in, in the opportunity uh, as, a, as a Crown attorney to be in a courtroom and appear in front of judges. And it, uh, it was what I wanted to do in life. I, I had pursued uh, a career in law because I, I loved the, the atmosphere and the learning and everything associated with it. But then my, my life took a, an unexpected turn and everyone, uh, including myself, when I think back on it, um, would not have predicted because I, I kind of swore off politics uh, in large part because of my dad, you know, and, and, and sometimes parents have that, that tension. I'm not going to do what my parents did. 
Right. But you know, it was a it was a chance encounter that I had with uh, with Jean Charest, who was the leader of the Conservative Party at that time, and had served with my dad. And he struck me as a young, dynamic, bilingual guy. And uh, you know, he he uh, approached me and said, "Look, uh, you know, would you consider running?" I you know I was not even in my thirties at that time, and I said, "Well, you know, I'm I'm pretty happy doing what I'm doing." And that was in you know 1992, and then about a year later, we're heading into an election, and uh, or sorry, ni 1996 it was, um, and then after Christmas that year in '97, he called me back and he said, "Look, we're we're really in need of candidates out east, and you know you you have a family name and you're you're doing well in your career. Will you consider it?" and I, I look, there was already two or three people who'd been uh, pursuing the nomination. And I said, well, maybe, you know, maybe I'll give it a try. And uh, so I, you know, I got my friends together, guys that I played rugby with, some of the local police officers and folks around home that I had known. And it was a highly competitive nomination, which I, I did end up winning. But as a result, I got fired from my job as a Crown Attorney, which uh, I'd never been fired from anything in my life, it was, and I wouldn't recommend it as a, as a career launch, but it, uh, it, it made it a very newsworthy event. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I immediately sued the Nova Scotia Public Prosecution Service, and that, you know, fast forward, that case uh, eventually did get resolved in my favor, but it, uh, it, it put me on a much different course than I ever intended. Um, and, and no regrets, no regrets. And now I'm back practicing law again in Pictou County, living about two blocks uh, from the house that uh, my parents were living when I was born. So some would say I didn't get very far in life. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's right. Uh, Peter, it's uh, so much down back there uh, in, yeah, in the very yeah. beginning. I mean, the blueberry farm, I'd like to go, I'd like to go there at some point. Uh, granddad in the Navy, wow. Um, tell me about that first uh that first entrance into politics, I go, uh, your dad, of course, so there would have been some experience there, you would have known what you're getting into, but it had to be a little overwhelming, kind of pulling all these together in, in a very competitive field, eh? Oh, my God, it, it was very overwhelming, Alan, and, and the Conservatives were not exactly uh, a force to be reckoned with at that time. You know, there had been that corporate downsizing in 93, where they went from a majority government down to two seats, uh, Jean Charest and Elsie Wayne an Atlantic Canadian right. were the only two left standing. And uh, I showed up, you know, having literally walked out of a courtroom into the House of Commons, which I saw as the biggest courtroom in the, in the country. And I approached it very much like I was in court. I, you know, I would address the speaker as if he was a judge. And uh, Jean Charest had asked me to be the house leader and the justice critic. Yeah. So I had no idea what the role of a house leader was. So I studiously read up on all of the rules of procedure and Beauchene's rules and uh, but I would address the, the parliament like like I was in court and, and Sheree called me up to his office one day and I thought I'm, I'm in trouble <laughs> and he says uh, he says look I, I know exactly what's going on here and he said because I did the same thing when I you know when I first got elected he said but you, you have to address parliament as if you're speaking to the whole country not just the, the judge or the speaker well, that didn't really help me much. <laughs> that made so it did even you, more did you speak, overwhelming. What'd you do? You spoke, spoke louder, did you, to reach everybody? <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Well, I mean, to, to your point, Alan, I had I'd grown up around politics enough to know 
that you, you know you had to really be within yourself and and you know be serious about it and uh you know robert stanfield was the person who recruited my dad into politics right. um you know and looking back on it i followed more of a, a similar path to my father than I, I even knew at the time. But Stanfield had been, you know, at my grandmother's kitchen table in Lorne. Um, I, I, you know, had followed his career a little bit. In fact, my two, my two idols as a kid were Daryl Sittler and Robert Stanfield, which is a strange mix, but the, they both played for the blue team. There you go. <laughs> you must be happy with the Leafs lately. <laughs> the Leafs are looking good. They're, uh, they, I don't want to jinx them. They got to win tonight. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, Peter, coming out of Picto there, Picto County, and thrust in into politics, and then you go on a trajectory within uh, your career in federal politics. Incredible. You go on to do incredible things. Take us through that journey. You must have been in rooms, in conversations with people uh, that you never would have thought you would have been there and probably uh, walked out thinking, wow, was there ever those moments? Oh, look, Alan, there, there were many, um, you know, just the, the, the feeling of being in Parliament and the, the awe that you feel walking up to the centre block and, and stepping in the chamber where, you, you know, you, you remind yourself that everyone from John A. Macdonald, uh, John Diefenbaker, Wilfrid Laurier, and I, I was a you know, I'd studied politics prior to law and history. And, and so I, you know, I was very much um, feeling the sort of the, the, the historic weight of, of what was going on around me. But, you know, as your career progresses, and, and when, you know, when you form government, and you're, you're in the cabinet, the, the pace is absolutely relentless, it, it literally feels like you're living life in fast forward right and you know when i wasn't traveling my first uh, my first foray into government was as, as minister of foreign affairs now global affairs i was in 58 countries in the first 18 months and and it was you know when i wasn't traveling uh, you know to abu dhabi or you know israel or somewhere you know in the asia pacific i was coming back to picto county and then when you're home it's not like you can put your feet up no. Because there's, you know, there's the 50th anniversaries, there's the, the local fire, a volunteer firefighter appreciation night, you're doing an announcement or a ribbon cutting and, and people, you know, they, they expect you to show up, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you one of, one of those kind of first real shocker moments for me was after being sworn in at Rideau Hall, they took me over to the Pearson building, which is the, the, the ministerial office. And I literally am walking into the corner office at that building and uh, someone who I later became very familiar with, my, my personal assistant, she comes in and she says, uh, uh, Condoleezza Rice on line one. <laughs> Condoleezza Rice. And so the American Secretary of State, you know, obviously had their, their timing and uh, they called and, and, you know, she came on the line and... Uh, you know, we went on professionally to have a, you know, a very good working relationship and, and went to numerous international uh, summits and gatherings together. And I, I became good friends with her. In fact, she came to Pictou County on one occasion to uh, thank the people of Nova Scotia and the people of Newfoundland and Labrador for their support during 9-11. But that, that call really took me by surprise. <laughs> and, 
What I had known about her, which had nothing to do with politics, was that she was a huge American college football fan. Really? And, and I knew that she had gone to Notre Dame. So, you know, somewhere early in the conversation, I said, how do you think the Fighting Irish are going to do this year? <laughs> and, and I'm sure there was all of these, you know, bureaucrats on the line, and they're all thinking, what <laughs> on earth is going on here? Like, what's this rube from nova scotia talking about but she loved it you know she yeah. she thought that was great you know and then we went on obviously to have a serious conversation about water rights and the, the beaufort sea and uh, there, there was always you know a little bit of chafing between our our countries on things like trade and boundaries and various various international items peter the the canadian brand is so strong around the globe what was it like to be the the ambassador, the brand ambassador for Canada as a minister of foreign affairs? I mean, you must have been high on life when you walk into a room wearing that maple leaf. Oh, there's no question. It uh, it's both daunting and and awe inspiring, Alan, to uh, to represent your country in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. You know, and I make too many sports illusions, but you are you know your team Canada. You're you're there representing your country you're trying to forward obviously uh, an agenda and certain interests you know in in my case i was dual hatted i was i was minister of foreign affairs which represented the entire country but i was also and and quite significantly the minister of atlantic canada opportunities okay and so that i i think for the first time um in government really elevated that office to a place, I mean, John Crosby was a COA minister, my, my father was, Jerry Merrithew, there, there were a number of prominent Atlantic Canadians, but they'd never been combined in right. that particular role. So I led a number of trade missions where we brought Atlantic Canadian business leaders with us to places like India, uh, a number of countries within the European Union. And it, uh, you know, I, I dare say it gave Atlantic Canadian businesses a bit of cachet to be on these global stages and unique opportunities to be in rooms and, and talk about, you know, Atlantic Canadian lumber products, our, our fishery, of course, significant and, and still very much recognized throughout the world. But I, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed being able to bring that Atlantic Canadian flavor and flair to the, the Office of Minister of Foreign Affairs. In fact, one thing I did is, is I ensured that the, uh, the building was stocked with Atlantic Canadian wine, which was the <laughs> first time that had ever happened. Of course, as soon as I was gone, that wine was gone too. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, it, it's great to go on these trade missions and the like and, uh, and to promote the country. I find that uh, I've been on a lot of trade missions with the province of Prince Edward Island over, over my years. And I find that uh, Atlantic Canadians largely have a way to connect with people all over the globe. Doesn't matter where you go, Atlantic Canadians are, uh, they tend to be open and genuine. And there's a way that they just embrace the room. I'm sure you found that as well. That, that's absolutely my experience, yeah. you know, then and now, uh, yeah. that Atlantic Canadians are by far the best spokespersons for whatever the issue, whatever the cause might be. And, uh, you know, some people, uh, you know, sometimes they feel Atlantic Canadians are, are understated and, and we don't assert ourselves. I, I don't believe that. I think Atlantic Canadians uh, are, 
you know, as capable, if not more so than any. And when you look at the success of people like Ron Joyce, for example, yeah. uh, you know, who came from Tatamagush, Nova Scotia, and, you know, and there's these iconic names like the Solbys here locally, but the McCain's, the Irvings, the Crosby's, you know, they, they had the confidence and they thought big. Right. And we need to do more of that. We need to instill that in the next generation that, you know, coming out of Atlanta, Canada, it, it shouldn't be seen as any kind of a holdback or a hurdle. It's actually beneficial. Yeah. You know, ask Sidney Crosby uh, yeah. if he's ashamed where he came from in Cole Harbor or Nate McKinnon yeah. or, or anyone for that matter. Danny Clary, you know, yeah. we've we've uh, competed on a world stage, let alone a, a, a local or, or national stage with the very best in the world. And, and, you know, one one quick point I, I want to make to back that up, Alan, and I know you have a history at the Department of National Defense as well. To this day, you know, the population of Atlanta, Canada is roughly 9%. Over 20% of the Canadian Armed Forces call Atlanta Canadians, Atlanta Canada home. Right. And the largest base in the country is Halifax. So, We've contributed mightily in the area of national defense, which, again, I believe sets our region apart and speaks to that love of country and patriotism that, you know, you really wish more Canadians would, would embrace and, and embody. Yeah, it, it, strong foundation here. There's no doubt about it, Peter, that we, we genuinely believe uh, we believe in Atlanta, Canada. We believe in our country. For sure. Uh, Peter, you, you then take you, you go from foreign affairs into defense. Talk a little bit about that, your experience there. I'll, I'll tell you that when you were defense minister, I was serving. So I, I, I guess I worked for you at some point in my career. There you go. I was I was long out of the reserves <laughs> at that point. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, I'll, I'll go back just in a moment um, to the question. I had tried to join the, the, uh, the armed forces, the Navy, in fact. When I was at law school, I, I wanted to go to the JAG, uh, the Judge Advocate Generals, as part of, of my career. And they had a freeze on hiring at that oh. time in, in the early 90s. And, and that was in large part because of my, my granddad. And, uh, and, and then the moment passed. You know, I, I finished law school. I was out. I, was, I think I was articling at the, uh, the Attorney General's Department at the time. And the call came and said, hey, we, we've got an opening now. And, you know, I'd sort of moved past that, but I, I regret it. I, I wish I had worn the uniform at some point. Um, but then going to national defense, I guess I served in a different way. And I have today um, just the utmost appreciation for what you and, uh, and Jerry and others, anyone who has served our country in uniform and takes on, you know, unlimited liability which few people really appreciate. This is not, you know, there are other emergency responders who, who similarly sign up to put their lives on the line, but it, it takes a special commitment to do that. And what I saw of our men and women in uniform in Afghanistan was, uh, was just inspirational, beyond inspirational. And, you know, many people make comments about today's generation. Our generation that served and continue to serve. They stand on the shoulders of greatness, to be sure. But they had the same grit and determination and patriotism and professionalism of any generation. And they did an outstanding job for us. There's a 
generation of kids in Afghanistan who will smile when they see a Canadian flash on the shoulder of, of a soldier or they, they hear a reference to Canada, they'll smile because we collectively, they, our, our men and women and our diplomats, uh, but our forces performed magnificently and made an indelible mark on the, the country and most importantly, the children of Afghanistan. It's uh, to me, one of the most momentous um, periods of my life, uh, being around those who uh, were serving the Canadian Armed Forces. Peter, when you, uh, when you took the corner office of the Department of National Defense, uh, your granddad must have been going through your head in there many days. Yeah, you know what? I, I, unfortunately, uh, he died when I was still quite young. Um, but I, I had a renewed interest in my grandfather by, absolutely, Alan. I, I uh, you know, spoke to my mother about it. And he, he was like so many of that generation. He didn't speak about his time in service. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I found out later he was at Jutland. Wow. And he, you know, had he was in a number of real, you know, heavy duty naval conflicts where I'm sure he was thinking he wasn't going to make it home. But he, uh, you know, and, and that probably contributed to what I said earlier about wanting to stay on the land for uh, for the remainder of his life. But, you know, he he came out of that experience, um, I think, with like most, a, a great appreciation of family and wanting to spend as much time as he could among, among loved ones. And, and I was, you know, one of the grandchildren that was the beneficiary of that. He, he loved, uh, you know, being around children. And one of the things that I re remember that he did to this day, I kind of get emotional about it, but he, he would get down on the kitchen floor with us. I mean, he lived in a very meager little farmhouse in Centerville. And he would spin the tops of these pots with a wooden spoon and he'd get them all going, you know, and, and rattling around. And, you know, I was four or five years old at the time, but I, I thought that was the, you know, it was like a pinball machine to me. It was like a, a video game. It was fascinating yeah. that he could do yeah. this. And, he, you know, he had little things that he, he did that showed affection. You know, he would he would draw faces on the eggs uh, when we had hard boiled eggs in the morning. And he'd always say when we finished now, Put a hole in the bottom of that egg so the good fairies can't sail away. He had this lovely Irish brogue. He, he had right. grown up in Northern Ireland, and um, so he had. He was a great storyteller. He he was just a the, the storybook, you know, image that you have of a of a loving grandfather. Oh wow, that's fantastic! Amazing. So Peter, yeah. you've had tremendous success in uh, government and the like. What are those other things that keep you uh, drive? I know rugby is a big part of your life or was or still is. Yeah. You know, Alan, I, I played a lot of rugby and uh, uh, we were talking a little bit about that at the outset. And I made so many great friends uh, through that game. It, it's seen sometimes as a brutal sport and, and it certainly can well, be. I, I was just going to say it in the mornings in my shoulders and knees. <laughs> well, your face still has its boyish countenance. You didn't get any scars on the face. Many well, rugby players I had, do. I had five broken noses over the course of my rugby career. So, uh, yeah, my nose preceded me into a lot of rucks and, and malls. Um, so, I mean, sport, I, I played, played them all. I, I played baseball and hockey growing up. And, and I think that really, and this is 
my impression. There's a lot of life lessons found around ballparks and rinks and 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 rugby pitches and soccer. My, my kids are, are still quite young, but I would hope for them that they would have the positive takeaways that I did from sport. I, I still, you know, some of my closest friends um, were not from politics or from any professional career. It, it was through sport. Uh, and, you know, I, I, and that's not to suggest that there aren't other very worthy pursuits. You know, my, my daughter's in Highland dancing and she loves it and, and music and, and my mother was an artist and, and you know, art and, and so many other worthwhile pursuits give children, you know, a sense of confidence and belonging that I worry sometimes is missing with these video games. And, you know, I, I feel a bit like my, my grandfather, my other grandfather, who was, a, you know, kind of a Scottish stoic that worked in the woods. And, you know, he, he thought anything recreational was a waste of time. But... <laughs> I, I find myself sometimes channeling my my other grandfather, who I'm named for, when I see my kids, you know, wanting to be on these devices all the time. hundred uh, percent, Peter. You know, I gotta say, when Newfoundland got locked down for the second time, and I know Nova Scotia is in a third lockdown now, which hopefully we don't get there. But the one thing that really hurt me, despite the fact that business was a challenge, was not being able to put my skate on that ice. I, I know in talking to a lot of my buddies in the beer league, like the, the fact that rinks in Canada have been shut down, like the ability to get on the ice and have that wind blow through you is in a, for anyone who doesn't play hockey in Canada or anywhere, like it is such an incredible sport. And the one thing that I miss more than anything else was that. Yeah, I agree with you. I was lucky. We, we had, it was off and on, uh, as you know, um, but we had, we did get in a season of hockey here and my son, you know, got to play his little pals back in Toronto where we were living before we moved. They, you know, they canceled the season right out, right off the bat. So, you know, we, we've got no room to complain, but uh, yeah, I, I think Perhaps that is the, 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 the real troubling part of this pandemic is the, the restrictions and limitations on social interaction, including, you know, being at the rink, being at school, we're, we're homeschooling our kids now online. And it's not the same. We're, we're doing our best, but it's, it's challenging. And, and the, the demographic, the age group, I think, who are feeling it the most have to be those teenagers and you know, first and second year university students, you know, they, those big pivotal moments, graduations, uh, dances, yeah. high school, you know, yeah. hockey championships, that you can't replace that. And, yeah. and those are memories that are gone. So it, uh, you know, which leads you to a very serious discussion about the mental health implications of this, which I think, you know, you talk about waves, waves of the, the COVID and the pandemic, there's a wave, a bow wave, use a naval term coming, uh, when it comes to mental health. And, and we better be prepared. We better have the professionals, the psychologists and, and psychiatrists and, and counselors ready to face that challenge. We faced a challenge with post-traumatic stress coming out of Afghanistan and discovered there was a shortage of those much needed professions. Yeah, 100%, uh, Peter. I often talk to people about that now. These The people that are on the front line of this uh, I often refer to it as a war, uh, this pandemic, they will need support, not unlike, uh, you know, our friends and families and colleagues did coming back from war zones in the past. Um, 
I, I can go back to rugby for a moment there. Uh, you're clearly passionate about it. And, and I love how you describe that you still have mates now that you've played with in the years. When you were defense minister or foreign affairs minister, I'm sure those guys didn't care. When you came out on the field, they were going to put you in your place. And I'm sure right now you've got a young family and they're probably keeping you level too, just like those rugby players on the field. Tell us a little bit about your family, Peter. Yeah, that's that's a great segue because it is very, you know, it's very humbling and uh, and grounding to have kids. Uh, and I'll, I'll come back to, to a rugby story in reference in a minute. But yeah, my my son is uh, is now eight. And, you know, he's a he's a talented little guy. And, and that's all due to his mom. Hmm. But, uh, you know, he, he's at an age now where you can start to have more interaction. My daughter, the same. She's she's very uh, gregarious and outgoing. But I have a two-year-old who sometimes is just a complete orangutan. I mean, <laughs> and, and, you know, it doesn't matter what time of day or night. Um, I mean, he could come running in here any second. And, and he, the, I, I, I mean, I love them all. And you, you love them all the same, but in different ways. Yeah. But it's, uh, it, it is the essence of life. There's, there's just no comparator. I had ch- children quite late in my life. I mean, I'm 55. My I have a two-year-old, and you know some of my pals, their their kids are off to college. Or I have a friend I talked to last night is his oldest, uh, who's my goddaughter, is about to have a child. So put it this way: I'm glad I didn't miss this part of life because I, I almost feel like it was a secret club that I was aware of, but I was never really in. Right. Yeah. And when your own children come along, yeah, I mean you can love your nieces and nephews, and and you, you know, and you, you respect what parents are going through but it's lived experience you know there's there's Peter, nothing like I, I'm we, I, you make me feel so good talking to you I'm 55 with a 13 year old and everyone tells me how how young he is so I feel so good talking to you <laughs> well Jerry I'm gonna, I'm gonna send you honorary membership in the in the grandfather dad's club because um, I'm I'm wheeling up to the you know to the uh the elementary school and and uh, you know people are looking sideways at your granddad dropping you off yeah that hasn't happened i guess people know you well enough that they know that you're the dad not the granddad right well i I hope so i hope that's the case and i i I mean it's it's an incentive to keep in shape too i find jerry i'm uh i'm trying to you know keep up with these kids and uh and try to preserve at least some semblance of good health so i can chase them around or be on the sidelines for their game 100 percent. i remember jumping around in the living room you know six seven years ago when my 13 year old was seven or eight and I'm like, dear God, my knees are gone, you know, and it's like, yeah, you do need to stay in shape. It's, yeah, uh... it's the knees. It's, it's the <laughs> knees. I did a lot, you know, in addition to playing rugby and of course, it, part of the match is, is running, you know, that's the game. And I, I uh, so I did a lot of running uh, training, you know, when I wasn't playing a game and, but there's a point in time where your body just says, you know, enough. And uh, hopefully I'm not quite there, but you know, and, and you also know, Jerry playing hockey that you're using muscles that you haven't used all summer and you get back yeah. on the ice. But I, yeah. uh, there was one game of rugby that will, I guess, go down somewhat in infamy. We were, we were trying to raise awareness of the Canadian game and uh, actually a good buddy of mine from Newfoundland and Labrador, Tim Powers contacted me and said, uh, look, we, we'd like to, and he was big within rugby Canada. said, we'd like to, 
play a game on 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 Parliament Hill out in yeah. front of the Peace Tower. It'd never been done before. So you know, I I knew the uh, the uh, sort of the administration, I guess, and uh, the the gentleman usher of the Black Rod, and the uh, you know the the folks that took care of the premises, the precinct as they call it. And so we set it up and we had a game there. It started off, you know, it was going to be a friendly match. I enlisted the Royal Military College, and I had played a couple of games, exhibition games with them. You know, this is, this is, uh, gosh, 19, no, no, what am I saying? It was 2014, I think, or 13. Anyhow, we, we, we arranged for the game. Royal Military College had just come off a season uh, in the Ontario University League, and we were playing the I Ottawa Irish. So both teams were, you know, match ready. They, they had come just finished seasons and we were going into this game just kind of as a demonstration. You know, there's a couple thousand people turned out to watch. They had, they, you know, the, the field marked off and uh, it was sevens. And the next thing, you know, I mean, this thing turns into a pure nine brawl because we had started ratcheting it up. Yeah. I got a couple of guys that I had known that had played for Canada, including Rod Snow, a guy named Morgan Williams, who had captained the Canadian team. And Tim went out and got Al Sharon, who was probably the most decorated rugby player in Canadian history. And they had a couple of guys that had played, I think, you know, for Barbados. And, and so yeah. I mean, some of these guys had like played in the World Cup and played against yeah. the New Zealand All Blacks. So by game time, the, the, the pitch of the game had gone way up. Anyway, long story short, I'm limping around the field and I, uh, you know, got in on a couple of plays, but nobody was, you know, giving any quarters. They, they were, uh, they were sticking, sticking it in pretty good. And uh, I'd actually come off the field. It was right near the end of the game. It was a tie game. And we, you know, had pretty much all of our young guys out there. And the guy who was sort of the, uh, the honorary coach says, you know, go back in there. You're the minister. Go, go back in there. We need good defense. Ha ha. So I go in and we're in, you know, inside our own 22 goal line stance. We have the ball. We're trying to, you know, get back down the field. And Morgan Williams, you know, the starting standoff for Canada, throws me a hospital pass. I mean, just atrocious. Skips broad snow, this beast of a man. And the yeah. ball winds up, you know, low. And I reach for it. Al Sharon, who weighs about 350 pounds, comes flying in and it's a, it's a wet day. And anyway, we collided. I broke my arm. I no. snapped. Ba oh, badly, badly. <laughs> and he's lying on top of me. And I said, Al, get off me. You broke my arm. He says, no. I mean, it looked like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. It went <laughs> the other way. Anyway, that was, that was not my proudest game of rugby. And, and it wasn't how I wanted to be remembered. <laughs> well, <laughs> I tell you one thing, it makes one hell of a story. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's going to be a lot of people who play rugby or fans are going to enjoy that uh, story. Uh, Peter, Jerry and I are passionate about uh, what's happening in Atlantic Canada. Whether you, you know, you look at uh, in Nova Scotia, I mean, they're building ships over there, uh, the likes of which the world has never seen. And they're going to be uh, put on a world stage. They're, they're going to serve our country well. And that the people, the welders, the electricians are all part and parcel of that. And if you look at New Brunswick, what they're doing in the cyber world and, and, and where they're taking that and Prince Edward Island and 
bio sector and in tourism and, and there's so much happening here and in Newfoundland in the tech sector things are really starting to explode over there I mean so many good things happening in Atlantic Canada we're coming out of a challenging time for sure globally where do you see Atlantic Canada moving into the future with all of these opportunities in front of us well, Alan, you, you've laid it out very nicely and, and not enough people, I think, uh, see it for what it is. It's, it's huge potential uh, and potential realized in, in all of those areas and more. The infrastructure that we have in place, the, the industries that are needed most, you, you know, you talk about the tech sector. Um, uh, you know, so much of, of our prosperity has been tied to the sea, but not necessarily you know, building naval ships, you know, we've, we've always been known for our, our vessels and our fishery, but you know, the, the Irving shipyard are producing world-class ships, which by the way, are replacing world-class ships exactly. that were produced here in a previous generation. Yeah. And those Arctic offshore patrol vessels there, I know that New Zealand's looking at them, uh, the weapons and communication systems on board those vessels, everything is interoperable now in the armed forces, as you know, and some of the, you know, to tie together some of the technology that's being used is, is again, absolutely world-class, top shelf. And we're, we're, so we're recruiting and bringing in people with the skills that are, are required and we're producing them in our community colleges throughout Atlanta, Canada, which again, you know, I, I would highlight, yeah. we have some of the best education systems anywhere. Our, our, uh, our education systems and our, teach, our universities, our professors, our community colleges, absolutely first class. And uh, there was a report called the Ivany Report here in Nova Scotia that, that really drew attention to that fact. Newfoundland and Labrador, you know, has had its ups and downs like every other part of Atlantic Canada. And, you know, Hibernia was a high watermark, but look what's going on at the, the lower Churchill and what's there already. I, I've been up to that site. It is just breathtaking to see the size of that generation of power and that surge coming through all of those various levees that make up the Churchill uh, site. And you know, it, this is the age where rightly we're talking a lot about green technology and climate fighting climate change. That has the potential to be the largest clean green energy producer in North America. It could light up the entire eastern seaboard of North America. And so there are some great things going on that the, you know, the engineering feat of build, building the, uh, the fixed link to Prince Edward Island. I, I remember, you know, that was during my father's time in, in the Mulroney government. But I remember when I became a coal minister, some official said to me, well, what are you going to do to top that? You know, and I said, well, we're going to build a tunnel to Newfoundland. And we did actually talk about that with, uh, with Danny Williams at one point. So, yeah, we, we need to not only highlight, but celebrate the good things that are here, uh, the quality of life, but it is really the quality of the people 100%. and, and their, their perseverance, their personalities, uh, you know, our music scene, our tourism, our arts community, our athletes, we, we have it all. And people, I think, are just starting to realize it. You know, we're seeing a bit of an uh, artificial real estate boom throughout Atlantic Canada. And the Atlantic bubble, I think, as it became known, it had, had something to do with that. But when people arrive, they, they're just, they're amazed. They're, they marvel at the natural beauty, the splendor, 
you know, uh, uh, gross morn, the, the, the beautiful seaside communities that we have. And, and again, it comes back to the, the character of our communities and the people who are here. Many who had to leave, who went down the road because of, uh, in, in search of opportunities, but it never leaves you. You know, we, we have a homing pigeon in all of us. It brings us back. I mean, all three of us are an example of that. Yeah. Peter, you mentioned the academic institutions, and uh, and I often talk about the importance of government, academia, industry, and our communities all working together as one, dropping those silos down so that we can all work effectively to solve challenges and problems together. And it really is evident in Atlanta, Canada. It, it really is. There, there's a genuine desire to drop those silos and work together. Would you agree? I, I would. Uh, and yet I think we can do more. Mm -hmm. I actually have always believed that Atlantic Canada as a whole, you know, should be doing more on a regional basis. And that includes something that I believe they are doing now, if I'm not mistaken, and that is the admissions process to Atlantic universities. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. We should be presenting ourselves and marketing ourselves and collaborating more in terms of our institutions because it's, you know, a military term, it's a force multiplier. Right. Because in order to compete even with other provinces, we need to band together. And that's not to give up any individuality. It's not to diminish any of the, 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 the character and characteristics of, of the four provinces. But I think we could do more in that regard. And especially now, you know, coming out, a post-pandemic economy is going to look much different. You know, we're having this meeting via, via Skype or Facebook Live. We have the ability now to use technology in a way that propels us rather than holds us back. We're sometimes a little bit seen as on the fringes and, and somewhat of an afterthought. Oh, well, we got to fly all the way out to Atlanta, Canada. Not so. Yeah. And, you know, that, that goes for government, too. You know, we have the Department of Veterans Affairs in Charlottetown. Why don't we have more of the infrastructure of government out here? You, you know, they, they ran uh, some of the programs for national revenue out of Viking, Alberta. We could diversify government in a way that would create, I think, more employment opportunities right. and more, more hands-on local knowledge. I mean, why is the, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans based out of Ottawa? As I think John Crosby used to say, there's no fish in the Rideau Canal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He used to say a lot, a lot John, of stuff, didn't he? John Crosby had a lot of great expressions for sure. We, we but, miss him. We miss him. Yeah. But absolutely, he was a great man. Uh, absolutely, Peter. There's so many opportunities, and you're you're absolutely right. We're stronger together coming out of this as a, as a region, for sure. And I think that I think we may have learned some of that through the so-called Atlantic Bubble, just how tight we were. I mean, there are certainly differences between Prince Edward Islanders and Newfoundlanders and Nova Scotians and New Brunswickers, but, but we're, we, we all genuinely want to see the region do well. We want to see our country do well, and, uh, and we do have an awful lot to, to offer. You know, it's a uh, bit like a family, Alan. I, I see yeah. it sometimes through that lens. You know, having been a Nova Scotian and Atlantic Canadian outside the region, <clears throat> when you meet somebody from you know, another Atlantic Canadian province, it, it isn't the same instinct that we have at right. home sometimes, which is we'd rather fight than eat. Yeah. But there's more of a, an affinity, you know, like, well, we're from a, a region of the country that struggled. Yeah. But that also has built up a, a resilience 
and, and a persistence, you know, and, and a will to succeed. And some, unfortunately, have had to go far afield to, to live up to that full potential. But when they bring it back and, and they're celebrated and, and they, they bring some of that experience to bear locally, uh, this, this bodes very well for our future because there, there is a loyalty like no other place. You know, yeah. people from Atlantic Canada want to see this region succeed. Sure, but we, we have a, a very interesting uh, way in Atlantic Canada, Peter, of um, meshing our music and our cuisine and our resiliency all together to, 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 to take on any challenge. It's really a beautiful thing when you when you look at like you take a place like Mabu, Cape Breton, not far from where you are right now. It's unbelievable how much talent exists in a tiny little community like that. And, and you can I can point my finger to, to all different places within Atlantic Canada. It's yeah, really there's a there, there is an incredible uh, amount of talent, you know, Mabu, Judic you know, the McMasters and the Rankins and, and many, many others uh, and throughout Newfoundland and, and Labrador, Great Big Sea uh, and, and so many, Damnit Doyle, there's so many, many talented musicians and, and, and much of what I find uh, compelling about the music of Atlantic Canada is, is weaved into it, as you say, is, is the storytelling. Yeah. And I mean, I, I grew up listening to Stan Rogers, who many don't know wasn't from Atlantic Canada right. it was actually I think from Hamilton and we have the Stan Rogers Music Festival just down the road from us in in Guysboro in, in a place called Canso but uh you know he, he, in here locally we've got George Canyon uh, Dave Gunning uh, both you know great guys and 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 you know more I, I guess modern musicians uh winter sleep there's some great yeah. great talent all around us that that's celebrated and sometimes even appreciated more outside the region because 100%. you know you saw them at a local pub or a bar 100 percent, peter we take that for granted it's like i i often you know when, when i'm driving somewhere and i'm driving down the coastline occasionally i'm not paying attention to what's happening out the window and i'm saying like people from around the globe would love to see what i'm seeing right now and sometimes you just take it for granted when we that we live here and the, and the culture and the music sometimes is that and you got to pinch yourself and say i'm in the middle of it i'm in the moment well uh, that's one of the things that you miss too when you're away like yeah. how many kitchen parties do you remember <laughs> in your youth and and just the the friends and and the, the crack that you had at yeah. those Christmas and, and, you know, family gatherings and somebody take out a guitar or fiddle. And I, I think referencing Crosby again, there was, there was a story he used to tell about somebody, you know, late into the night and they were sitting on a, on, on a barrel. And uh, as the night went on and the drinks were coming, he, the flowing, he, he get further and further down into the, into the barrel. And somebody says, you know, John, your arse is in, do you know your arse is in the pickle? And he <laughs> says, no, but if you hum a few bars, I'm sure I can play it. <laughs> you might have to edit that out. I don't know. <laughs> Peter, we, Jerry and I, uh, benefit from uh, having a very supportive partners that allow us to, to do these things. And, uh, and, and I sense, 
as we talk here today, your foundation from your mom and dad and your grandparents and, and now the foundation that you're providing for your children, it's all a solid thing. It's a, it allows you to do those things and to contribute in a way you want to do. Your partner, where, where does your partner play into this, keeping yeah. you grounded? Well, I'm glad to get a chance to speak about Nazanin. My, my spouse, uh, my wife, uh, is a, just an incredible person. I, I won life's lottery when I met Nazanin. And uh, she has such a storied career herself. Um, grew up on the West Coast, um, but was born in Iran. And her family came here essentially as refugees, political refugees. The, the, in 1979, um, the Shah was deposed and there was a revolution in Iran and, and they were a, a persecuted minority. Uh, her family are Catholic. Her, her mom was Zoroastrian, but converted to Catholicism. And so the Islamic Republic of Iran uh, took a lot of hostile measures against certain minorities. And so she wound up in Iran. And it was only later in life that she found out much of the history of her family. And as a result, it inspired her to become a human rights activist. And without belaboring the, the story, I met her because of her activism uh, for an organization that she started called Stop Child Executions which hard to believe, and I know this is an optimistic program, but hard to believe that there are countries, including China and Iran, that execute children as some as young as nine years old mm -hmm. for things like apostasy, changing religion, homosexuality, unspecified crimes against the government. And so she became very, very involved. She, she had been Miss Canada, Miss, Miss Canada, World Canada, and, and she used that stage, which she described as beauty with a purpose. And she was a musician, an author. And uh, so she, she put all of that aside to pursue this, you know, atrocity of child children being executed. And so she went to the United Nations on a number of occasions and started petitions. And that's how I met her. She, she lobbied uh, the government and, and me as minister at that time. And we kept in touch over a number of years. She was living on the West Coast. I was living on the East Coast. We were both, you know, involved at that time. And, and we just kept in touch on these very serious subject matters. And I would be at a conference, you know, in Malaysia. And there was an opportunity to meet with the ministers of some of these offending countries. And she would send me the names <laughs> of children who were in custody and say, you know, wow. raise these issues with them. And so that was our initial bond. And, and, you know, as time went by, we became more involved. And, and now we've got three children and we're living on the East Coast. I, I sort of feel in a way that I, I got her here on, under false pretenses. So I said, you know, you live on the West Coast. We're on the East Coast. Very similar maritime communities. <laughs> and the, her first visit out here, I think, was in February or March. And it was one of those just brutal storms you know like the snow was up to the windows and yeah. you know you, you you couldn't drive down the street she said this is nothing like vancouver nothing like <laughs> has she has she embraced picto now oh yeah she she really yeah. does and and yeah. you know my family uh just just adore her uh and we're we're close uh, you know i 
my, my closest friends really in life are my siblings. And so they, their, their kids are a little older than, than my own, but uh, for them and for Nazanin to be back here in Pictou County and, and amongst families, it's, it's magic. It's, uh, it's just a, a really good feeling to be home. Right. They, they, it's again, back to that Atlantic Canada thing. We have a way about embracing people and there's a, there's a warmth about it, isn't there? There is. And, and, you know, I, I think that is, again, part of the charm. And, and, you know, you sometimes hear that word and you think, well, it's, that's meant in kind of a, a diminutive way. And, and it's meant to see, you know, oh, you, you folks out in Atlantic Canada, you have that folksy way. It, it's, it is genuine. You know, you've used that word and I, I, totally believe that to be true there's a there's a real honesty genuine caring that people have here in Atlanta Canada and you know we we need immigration there's no question that our region needs uh, an influx of people from around the world and that's always been the case you know initially it was waves of Scots and Irish you know that that was my family history and and many Atlanta Canadians but there's people coming from Syria, from Afghanistan, from all over the Asia Pacific, and, and we benefit from that. And many of them come because of the, the schools, because of the education. And then they, they stay, they see career opportunities here. And so, you know, we need to keep pace with, with the rest of the country when it comes to immigration and embrace the opportunities and, uh, and ensure that we continue to, uh, to really be the beneficiaries of the international feeling that exists in this in this part of the world. Peter, we often uh, ask our guests to leave the audience with with one small takeaway. And you're a guy who's done a lot of things, uh, been a lot of places, seen a lot of things, uh, and, but yet you're a level guy. You're, you're a pretty level guy, and, and it comes from a, a really good place. What, what would that one piece of advice be to the audience, Peter? I would say pause and, and take stock of your life from time to time and think about how you want to be remembered. Uh, think about the mark that you, you want to leave. And, and it doesn't have to be grandiose. It doesn't have to be world beating. But, you know, just being good to people is, is a wonderful way to go through life and having them think highly of you. Um, I remember having discussions with my grandparents and, and they instilled in me some very simple philosophies and you know that amongst be the best you can be and be satisfied with uh, with your success and, and celebrate your success call yourself a winner and you'll be a winner absolutely jerry your thoughts well i mean i have so many thoughts uh, as i say I, I often sit quietly and listen to the banter i'm enamored with what you're saying peter and just your experience to be able, it's a privilege what Alan and I have started here to be able to sit with you and, and talk. Um, I do have a question. Um, political burnout. I have to ask that question. And the reason I'm asking it is that I worry about who wants to put their hand up. You described, if you were in a recruiting ad, the way you described that life it's, it's grueling. I'm sure it's rewarding. What advice would you have to anyone who's watching this episode and says, I'm scratching my head and thinking I might put my hand in the ring or my hat in the ring. What, what advice would you have? Well, brace yourself. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's become much more uh, public and, and I suppose in, in that way demanding on not just the individual, but those around them because of social media. 
mm-hmm. you know, that, that is the element that I saw over, over my career that changed things the most. Your exposure, uh, I'll just call it what it is, to, to ridicule and, and to abuse online. And so, you know, you can develop a pretty thick skin, which, which I have and, and others have too out of, out of necessity, but it's, it's hard on the people around you, you know, especially children. My children are still very young and hopefully they're not, they're not going to Google my name, but, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, it, it's still having said that, you know, on a positive side, it is, it is a way to impact on the life of your country like no other. And it's a noble calling, you know, and there'll be some of your listeners will sort of roll their eyes or scoff hearing me say that, but it's true. Anybody that has ever put their hat in the ring, uh, whether they won, lost or, or drew is, uh, is doing something that is worthwhile and, and commendable. It's, it's the essence and, and the nature of democracy to have community representation. And, you know, there are so many parts of the world that don't have it. And, and when you've been to those countries, I, I referenced Afghanistan, but I've been to a lot of places that, you know, governments only change with the sound of a gun. And, and not to sound overly dramatic about it, but we take our democracy pretty much for granted. You know, voter turnout is declining. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a remedy for that, obviously, <laughs> better representation, good government being among that, but also online voting. I, I mean, we should be able through modern technology to get more young people engaged, you know, having spoken of the negative side of, of social media and online activity, and there's a lot that's dark on, on the internet, but we should, we're, we're, we've never had so much education. We've never had so much power in the palm of our hands yeah, with, right. with phones and, and, and laptops, but you know, it's not, it's not an easy road to travel. Um, and especially when you come from the, the hinterlands, you know, when you have to travel from the Northwest Territories or from Goose Bay and Labrador to go to the Parliament of Canada. You know, in some cases, Leona Glucock was a good friend of mine who's now in Cape Breton with her husband and, and son, but she, she told me it used to take her a day and a half to get from Nunavut to Ottawa. And, you know, a lot of little float planes along the way. I remember talking to Peter Panashaway about the challenges. And so it, it, it's not, uh, shall we say, it's not a glamorous life. No. Um, and, it, you know, if, you, if you're able to satisfy 50% of the electorate, you're, you're doing all right. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I feel blessed. I feel very, very fortunate to have been in elected office, to have served in the Parliament of Canada, to have had an opportunity to be a minister. Um, by far, those were, you know, heady days, but nothing compares to being, you know, with my kids on the deck, taking them to uh, their, their ball practice or, or dance classes. Those, uh, those are the moments that you really cherish. And perhaps you cherish them, and it's true of any career, when, when you don't have the opportunity to do those things and you, you've experienced distance and longing and missed, you know, significant dates in your family and loved ones' lives, you, you really do cherish those moments even more. Well, I'm just going to say, I, you know, I know that was a heavy question at the end of our talk, but I want to say this. 
thank you, Peter, for your service. Uh, in listening to you talk, it's just you've given so much and you deserve every second on the deck with those children. Well, thank you. I, uh, I'd, I'd love to host you both here on the deck when you're over this way, when, uh, when we finally get out of this plague and, uh, and we get back to some semblance of, of normal life. And I know it will come roaring back and I know that Atlantic Canada can and, and should be at the forefront of those efforts to, to rebuild and to get our economy firing on all cylinders again. And we've got, we've got the know-how and the people and the horsepower to do it. Well, there you go, folks. Another wonderful edition of Gale Force Winds in conversation with uh, Peter McKay. And uh, what a wonderful conversation it was. I mean, we went from the kitchen floor on a blueberry farm spinning plates all the way through a life served in politics a gentleman who served our country very well, and we thank you for that. And uh, to understand now, juggling uh, new careers, new adventures, juggling a young family, but no doubt about it, with a solid foundation to help uh, keep things level at, at home and, and still contributing to our country. I always leave the podcast with my own piece of advice, and, and that is the world has seen Peter McKay, but the world needs more Peter McKay. So thanks very much, Peter. Well, Alan, Jerry, very kind of you both. And uh, I've enjoyed chatting with you and uh, I hope to do so again. And uh, God bless. Wish you and your families the very best. Be healthy and be safe. All the best. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for tuning in to Gale Force Winds. That's Gale Force Winds, W-I-N-S dot com.